0: This is Contra Radio from Contour.scot.
1: Hi, folks. David Jameson here, editor of Contour.scot. And we're here today with the second uh, podcast in a series examining a new book, Scotland After Britain, Two Souls of Scottish Independence. I'm joined by two of its authors, James Foley and Ben Ray. Guys, thanks very much for coming along. Thanks, David. Thanks for having us. Uh, And I should say, of course, it has a a third co-author, the late and great Neil Davidson, and the book builds on on some of his ideas around Scottish independence. The second chapter, so in in the first chapter, we dealt, I suppose, more directly with the present political conjuncture in the British state and examined some of the ideas about Scottish independence both pro and against uh, in, in the the British left. And that chapter kind of proposes some of your broad out- outlines of your argument about Scottish independence. And I urge those listening to this who haven't listened to that, go in and and listen to that. That'll be available uh, on ContraCast's SoundCloud, renamed Contra Radio, I should say. But the second chapter is somewhat more theoretical, and it deals with the, the kind of historical background of, of nationalist movements in general, national self-determination, arguments for uh, movements for national self-determination. It deals, first of all, with the ideas of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. And general readers might say, why start there? James, let me ask you that. I mean, we think of Marx and Engels as principally thinkers about social class. Uh, so why are they useful in uh, in thinking about questions of nationalism and national self-determination?
0: I mean, it may be worth thinking about the general background um, in which we were writing the chapter um, and in which we've been arguing about the politics of nationalism for some time. What happened in 2015 is essentially that the Scottish National Party displaced um, Labour and Labourism on a practical level But yeah, a number of theoretical arguments, I think, were were still laid from an earlier period of time in terms of what socialism was about and what socialism should be. Now, when I was first arguing about independence on student campuses, you would quite often come up against the objection, uh, which is curious, this doesn't so much exist anymore. But you would get the objection that if you're a socialist, you can't support a nationalist movement. Um, And this was articulated by generations of Labour students where they learned this as a sort of orthodoxy and thought very often that they were speaking from a Marxist perspective in their critique. So firstly, I think it's just useful to go through the arguments about what Marx and Engels actually said and what they actually did in relation to the national question. And what you get is a much more complex picture than what many people might imagine. Of course, there's all the sort of uh, talk of workers of the world um, uniting, we have nothing to lose but our chains, and all these sorts of famous quotes that people are familiar with. And there is a very real tradition of internationalism within Marxism, which I think is worth defending. I would also say that none of the authors of this book are theoretical nationalists, in the sense that we do not believe that just because there is such a thing as a national consciousness, that therefore a state should exist. So it's none of those sorts of things. But in the history and traditions of Marxism, actually what you find is that very often there's quite strong support uh, for national movements, national movements for self-determination, Uh, national movement for breaking up empires and so on and so forth, which are seen as part of the progressive trajectory of capitalist development. So we wanted to outline with this chapter both a critical perspective on actually existing nationalism, while clearing away the moralistic guff and garbage that's often written against nationalism, and particularly in a Scottish context. What I often find is that there's a sort of element of moral superiority that attaches itself to claiming yourself to be an internationalist, and nationalists are therefore seen as bad by comparison. And what I would end on saying is that's not always the case. There are such things as bad internationalisms or bad cosmopolitanisms or whatever you want to call them. There are bad modes of transnational politics, which I think socialists should be even more severely critical of than they would be of nationalism. There's a sort of Davos internationalism and arguably the the internationalism of NATO and the European Union as well. These are part of the way that power is exercised under capitalism in quite a strong and severe sense. And we need to be just as critical of them if we're to understand how capitalism works as we are of nationalist movements.
1: Ben, when it comes to the writings of Marx and Engels on Nationalism. I mean, the caricature of their writing on nationalism in my head is always they were generally supporters of national movements in Europe against autocratic kind of pre-nationalist, as it were, uh, regimes. And then things get a bit more complicated when you look outside of Europe at the way uh, European colonialism starts to impose itself on on the rest of the world. But in my mind, there was always this caricature of they support progress. So they support national claims, for example, against the Russian Empire. Um, Is it more complicated than that? I mean, because the the development of of nationalism is a very contradictory historical development. What phases do Marx and Engels kind of go through in their examination of national questions?
2: Well, I think that the the first phase is that, uh, as you said, to support national movements, uh, insofar as they um, help the kind of breakup of autocratic of autocratic um, sort of feudal, absolute states. Remember, they're writing in the mid-18th century, mid-19th mid century, sorry, um, when there is still a number of these um, empires, the very industrial Hungarian empire, Russian empire. That's probably the first context in which you have to say that, you know, they support, national movements as a a means of rupture of those uh, broader broader empires. And then their kind of position evolved um, when it came to countries that were, you know, bourgeois rule, capitalist rule was already established. Um, So, for example, on Ireland, um, Marx writes, and we quote this in the book, that he previously had thought the answer to the Irish question really was the English working class. As in, it would be socialism in Britain which would uh, help liberate the Irish, but that, through further analysis and study, totally changed that position, and you know argued that the actually the Irish question um, was key to socialism in the UK. So he came from the completely opposite direction on it. So he started to see how Marx and Engels' position on um, national movements within capitalist states, like the British state, um, was evolving towards one where they viewed disruption of bourgeois rule as something positive. Um, National liberation movements as something that can contribute to wider um, socialist agenda. I think that's probably the, the starting point, really, is the Marx and Engels don't really have a theory of, of nations or nationalism as such, but what they do have is a strong sort of tactical sense of the, what role um, nationalist movements can play uh, the material consequences of the victory or defeat of a nationalist movement for, for a, a working class consciousness contributing towards the breakup of strong uh, imperial, imperial powers. So tactical and international was the kind of uh, perspective they had. And this was at a time um, when nationalism in the in the 19th century, the, the, the concept of nationalism was a little bit different than the way we would think of it today, because a lot of nationalists like um, Mazzini, who was, was sort of one of the first liberal nationalists in Italy, they had this idea that, nationalists, that national states would be big states. So they didn't imagine that. So Mazzini, for example, didn't imagine that Ireland could be um, its own independent state. So the concept of what I'm meant to be a, a nationalist at that time is a bit different from the way, um, the way we, we we would think about it now. But I think that's the key to understanding Marx and Engels' approach in, in terms of colonialism as well is what role is national movements going to play uh, in terms of the international order of states? Um, what impact is it going to have on that? So it's quite a consequentialist sort of perspective and what role is it going to play in terms of uh, its impact on class consciousness and socialism. And really those tactical, that tactical kind of approach is, is really the substantive, um, the substantive questions when it comes to Scottish independence, I would argue as well. You know, what impact is Scottish independence going to have on class consciousness and working class organisation in Scotland and what impact is it going to have in, in terms of the breakup of the British state than being still a
1: significant imperial power in the world. Um, It occurred to me reading uh, the chapter, and I'd never really thought about this before, that many on the left are desperate for what you might call an ideological orientation on this question, rather than one that's sort uh, sort of pragmatic or based on factors or based on a scientific analysis of the world. They want to have one absolute position that will apply to every single national context around the world. And the left tends to bifurcate in two directions. One is what James has already discussed, which is this kind of, kind of stupid, like, the workers have no country, let's not remember the rest of that quote. You know, the workers have no country, let's just not have no nations, no borders, etc. The other side of that is people saying national self-determination is the absolute principle that applies in every single uh, national question. And as James has already indicated... That's sometimes uh, meant to mean that every nation must have a requisite state. And on other occasions, it just means the right to decide. But in any, any case, uh, your chapter kind of pours water on the idea of, or if not the idea of national self-determination, the institution of national self-determination. And you argue that it's uh, it's a very useful ideology for lots of different actors, but ultimately it's kind of hollow. Um, James, tell us about national self-determination and why it's such a kind of conflicted concept.
0: Yeah, we we kind of treat this together with the concept also, another one drawn from Lenin, of oppressor and oppressed nations. And you're right you say this is basically part of an effort to have some sort of absolute moral principle or moral criteria underlying uh, what socialists should say, about nationalism, which is actually a very complex, and as Ben said, often a very tactical set of assessments that need to be made about what your impacts are on domestic class consciousness, and what the impacts are in the wider international uh, sphere of politics. As Marx and Engels kind of tended to, app- that's how they tended to approach these types of questions. National self-determination, uh, you know, we can date that probably to the twin events surrounding around the years of 1917 of declarations from uh, Lenin, of course, around the Russian Revolution, um, and also of Woodrow Wilson and the 14 points. So it's got kind of a sort of conjoined Marxist and, uh, you know, classical liberal type of lineage. Woodrow Wilson's no longer vetted as this kind of great liberal hero the way he used to be, now that his history of supporting the KKK and all that sort of thing has come out. But nonetheless, uh, there does seem to be this sort of dual moment surrounding national self-determination. The problem is, I think, partly that in the anarchy of international politics, it's very difficult to actually enforce some of these claims. I mean, particularly in an era that we've come through, um, which is dominated by a single superpower. In the past, you may have been able to play off rival superpowers and so on and so forth, but ultimately, there's not much in international law that can enforce around some of these questions of national self-determination, and very often it does come down to the interplay of the anarchy of states underwritten by the overall uh, overarching military power of the United States of America. So most people would concede The Palestinians have a legitimate claim to national self-determination, but it's basically impossible to enforce that in practice. And similarly, when you come to the latest round of what you might call nationalist movements in Western Europe and the global north, Scotland, Catalonia, etc., etc., it's not always entirely clear what it would mean for those nations to be able to claim the right of self-determination or how exactly that would be enacted, given that we can't see the advanced capitalist states uh, of Spain and the United Kingdom entering a full sort of breakdown in the civil war and anarchy, even if there was vast repression um, in Spain um, surrounding the referendum, as we know. So I guess it's just that like, it's useful for various different people to be able to make claims around national self-determination. And sometimes that's going to include the left and socialists and other people as well. But nonetheless, it's not some absolute principle and it's not something that's worth considering a right Insofar as it's very difficult to be able to uh, defend it in practice. It's more like a sort of basis for mobilisation at particular times in history. It might be worth also considering the question of oppressor and oppressed nations, because, again, I think that's another effort to not have some absolute criteria of morality. All nations are good. All nations are bad. But it's sort of an intermediary that's been used in the past to say, well, this is how we distinguish the good nationalism from the bad nationalisms. Again, I think the, the distinction has been much used in the history of Scottish nationalism, because critics of Scottish nationalism have pointed out quite rightly that Scotland's role in history isn't just being shat on and oppressed by the English, as nationalists have sometimes imagined. And therefore, some people have taken that to conclude that we shouldn't support Scottish independence because it's not support for an oppressed nation, as it might have been, for instance, with Ireland, that Ben mentioned earlier. I think that is actually far from being useful, to be honest, in the case of the question of Scotland. And Scotland maybe illustrates why this isn't a particularly useful distinction in practice, because yes, it's certainly true that Scotland was a major and formative part of the British Empire and Scots were overrepresented within it and so on. It's also true that Scottish nationalists have made false claims of being oppressed Mostly in the past, but to an extent in the present as well, all the brave heart stuff and all that sort of, you know, kind of nonsense. But I think nonetheless, it's pragmatically true that Britain is a central imperial state uh, with thriving nuclear weapons, which we may come on to discuss, role in the Security Council and all these other things would be weakened by uh, the cause of Scottish independence. It may help other states challenge the role that Britain has played as an auxiliary to American power in the world. And on those terms, socialists have supported the cause of Scottish independence without thereby endorsing nationalism as a principle. And I think it's quite legitimate to do that, which kind of suggests the limitations of some of that underlying morality of oppressor on oppressed nations.
1: Um, maybe, Ben, you could pick up a, on a couple of those points. So the first on Britain's international role, I think a really interesting point is made in the chapter that we tend to think of Britain as a declining power in a sense that it can never have a resurgence. But Britain's actually adapted quite well to its new role as an interva- international purveyor of diplomatic force, the arms industry, its alliance with the United States.
2: Britain is, you know... Whatever way you, you look at British Britain's economy, um, it's, it's imperial or imperialist. Um, so if you look at its financial role in the world, um, the role of the City of London um, coming out of the, the British Empire, it, it, was, it managed to maintain that financial control in, in, in many parts of the world, through the Commonwealth, through the tax haven network, and it's still the, the, the major financial centre in the world. and through that power, it extracts um, surplus value from, um, you know, countries all over the world, weak countries all over the world. And you look, for example, the the current um, situation in Pakistan, where they've had this massive monsoon, it's drowned one third of the country. And some people are talking about Pakistan's uh, 150 billion odd per year debt. Um a lot of that debt will be will be going towards the, the city of London. And therefore it's quite right that people say that you know it should be cancelled because a country like Britain's you know contributed to um, carbon emissions infinitely more than, than a country like Pakistan. That's just an example. So that's the financial side. Then obviously the, the military side of Britain has one of the most important arms industries in the world. So from that sense, um you know, one of the things we, we argue in, in the book, uh, in this chapter, is about the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Because a lot of people will talk about um, British patriotism being a, a good and positive thing versus nationalism, British nationalism or, or Scottish nationalism, being a, 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 always a negative reactionary thing. And um, you know, patriotism essentially is a word that's used when you want to, you know, express nationalist sentiment, but you don't want to use the word nationalist, you know. So for example, when Corbyn was the leader of the Labour Party, he was constantly being there was constant demands for him to be more patriotic. And by that, you know, people making those demands weren't asking for him to be patriotic and again, George Orwell's sense of, you know. Love for the love for the countryside and, and 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 for the town people and so on and so forth. It was for him to you know support Trident nuclear missiles, to advocate for the monarchy. These are the sort of uh, symbols of, of British pages. I and mean, really, that is about you know nationalism, imperialism. Without wanting to use those words, so there's a um, you know when people critique nationalism. Um, from the point of view of saying, well, Scottish nationalism is, you know, just like all the other nationalisms, are dangerous. Um, they're anti-internationalist, um, and, uh, and by implication, arguing for the continuation of the British state along its current lines, um, you know, it needs to be critiqued. That that, that needs to be critiqued in, in kind, you know, and challenged in, in kind to say, well. Um, what you call patriotism uh, is essentially British nationalism in its current state form, and that has much more serious and damaging implications for the world um, than, you know, the pursuit of of national independence, which is what Scottish nationalism is primarily um, associated with. So I think it's important to untangle a lot of the kind of mess around language um, in, in these debates uh, and the kind of hypocritical way in which um, language is used to kind of badge uh, Scottish nationalism as bad and, and, and uh, British patriotism as good.
1: Yeah or indeed American patriotism it's interesting to see that argument written down because it's something I'd always thought Um, without kind of hearing it articulated. But whenever I hear patriotic, I start thinking guns and bombs. Like that's usually what patriotism is. Nationalism can mean various different things. Patriotism to me always means state violence and the rituals that surround that. Um, See though, just to very quickly return to the idea of national oppression, I make a, a very interesting point in the chapter that hadn't really occurred to me, which is that, especially in discussions surrounding Scotland, um, we think of it as something on the pro-independence side that people argue that Scotland is an oppressed nation, but it's also there's a there's a there's, there's part of that more popular in the past perhaps than today, but it still leaves a residue of kind of unionist arguments that Scotland is so underdeveloped by its kind of unequal relationship to England and to the southeast that it is unusually it would become unusually prey to the forces of international capital uh, it would have a kind of weak national economy and so on and you can point to it to certain realities about that like the the, the strength of foreign ownership in the, the Scottish economy um but James like uh I, it had never occurred to me before that and you 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 make a particular dig at the the red paper collective uh, there's lots of quite fun little digs at labourism uh, in this book of Thatcher Bag. Um, but how has that coloured the kind of the kind of left unionist critique of Scottish independence?
0: That's This is part of uh, my uh, PhD thesis. Um, was exploring some of these um, historical debates in relation to Scotland um, about questions of colonisation and so on, and it's certainly true to say that if you go back into the 1970s and kind of up to certainly the 1980s, there's quite a specific argument from elements of labourism that says Scotland, in fact, is essentially been colonised and therefore is too weak uh, to have its own independence despite the surrounding circumstances of North Sea oil. And there's quite a lot of that type of stuff in various things that people will recognise from uh, Scottish history. You might think of the chibi at the stag and the black black oil, for instance, which, you know, is about a comparison or some sort of uh, analogy between the circumstances of the Highland clearances and Scotland's discovery of North Sea oil. But the political conclusions, which are socialist ones of a sort, are also those of saying, well, Scotland doesn't have the strength to be able to stand on its own two feet and therefore we need a sort of Britain-wide uh, class politics. Um, And that's quite a common argument also in, for instance, the Red Paper in Scotland, the original one, as opposed to the revived version that emerged um, a few decades ago, the one that was edited by a certain Gordon Brown. And Gordon Brown himself kind of uses some of this language of colonisation in order to describe what has happened to Scottish businesses, the lack of Indigenous business ownership, uh, and so on, that surrounds the Scottish economy. So you can find this in various uh, different places. You can find John Scott and Michael Hughes at that time talking about how Scotland is some sort of peripheral peripheral bourgeoisie, quoting Nicholas And Yeah, th- This type of argument is actually pretty common. You can see the ancestor of it, arguably, and some of the rhetoric, as you see, from the Red Paper Collective, there's also some rhetoric from Paul Sweeney that Ben quotes in the, the chapter, the earlier chapter of Britain, that kind of hints at the same thing. of have seen, look, all the real power in the Scot- in the British economy centers on the city of London. Scotland, essentially, is just a satellite. Uh, with no power in relation to the City of London. Therefore, what we need to do if we want any type of progress is just find a way of regulating the City of London on behalf of these poor, uh, impoverished peripheral regions. Um, So definitely this has been part of the way that this argument has operated historically. And that's curious because you often find labourist young intellectuals um, claiming that it's the Scottish nationalists who have this uh, jaundiced and ahistorical view of Scotland as being this colonised nation, when actually that argument has been just as common sometimes in the Labour left as it has been amongst the SNP. Indeed, the idea that Scotland has been colonised or as some sort of victim of English oppression is specifically rejected both by Alex Salmond and by Nicola Sturgeon, if not always by some of the more, you know, fringe elements online.
1: And that's an argument, this idea, I suppose, of the necessity for kind of smaller or more backward nations to be integrated into transnational alliances, that runs into certain other arguments that you take on in the the chapter uh, about transnational institutions. And you talk about internationalism from above and the crisis of that mode of uh, internationalism. Ben, what, what do you mean by internationalism from above and why is it in crisis?
2: Well, it's become very messy when people talk about uh, being an internationalist and what being an internationalist means these days, because often it's, you know, being an internationalist means you support NATO uh, in its its wars, or being an internationalist means you support um, the European Commission, the the institutions of the EU, or, you know, it's it's associated um, with institutions Um, with uh, governments and not with actually with peoples. Um, And this is, you know, what we've called internationalism from above. James touched on it earlier, uh, Davos um, internationalism, where you have a kind of unity of elite, uh, of elites and elite institutions, often uh, against um, the people. So, for example, uh, a good example of internationalism from above is the Um, the opposition to uh, the anti-austerity movement in Greece, um, whereby even as the Greek people voted in a referendum to reject um, the Troika austerity programme in 2015, they still still managed to, through the EU Commission, IMF, um, the Eurozone group, that was the Troika, they still managed to oppose austerity. So, Internationalism from above defeated internationalism from below, because obviously at that moment in time there was an anti-aesthetic movement across Europe, and Greece was really at the at the heart of that, uh, that anti-aesthetic movement. And there was solidarity protests in Scotland and elsewhere with, with Greece. So these two types of internationalism are clearly mutually incompatible. Catalonia would be another example, the Catalan referendum in 2017, uh, which was crushed by the Spanish state. Um, uh, a move which the European Union tacitly supported, um, that was one mode of internationalism uh, between member states and the European Commission defeating another, where there was movements in Scotland and elsewhere in support of of, um, the Catalan referendum. So that's the kind of clash that goes on, but, but that kind of distinction, that kind of class distinction between two different types of internationalism Often um, is elided even on the left, in when, when we talk about nationalism today, now why is internationalism from above in crisis? Well, the institutions of neoliberal globalization are going through um, going from one crisis to the next, whether it be um, first the financial crisis, the pandemic, the Ukraine war, is te- is straining the sinews of internationalism from above from the. The unity of of elites in that sense, and then obviously there's been a political response um, which has been opposed to nationalism from above as well, from the the right wing rise of right wing populism um, in Europe, uh, America, Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil, and so forth. Now, where does Scottish nationalism set within this? I think this is quite important to understand because um, you know a, a very superficial look. Uh, Scottish politics, uh, Scottish nationalism, sorry, would would argue that you know it's a little Scotlander idea, um, whereby you know you want to withdraw yourself from from the world. Actually, Scottish nas- nationalism couldn't be more in line with internationalism from above, because it's both a product of the you know the breakdown of globalization. But in another sense, it's a catalyst for globalisation and it remains a cat- catalyst for globalisation because basically what Scottish mainstream Scottish nationalism says is, we want a seat at the table uh, of the current order. Um, we want the current order to stay in place. We support it. We defend it. We oppose uh, moves to, um, to undermine it. We just want our, our seat at the table. So so Scottish nationalism in some ways is extremely internationalist in the sense of being supportive of uh, internationalism um, from above. And that's, um, you know, that's widely, I think, there's a wide misunderstanding about that um, from people outside outside of Scotland and from inside Scotland, really, because inside Scotland supporters of independence would argue, um, you know, we are really the internationalists. Um, But I I would argue that, okay, you can say that's a type of internationalism, internationalism from above, but what the SNP offer is still nonetheless nationalist. Um, And the reason is because they argue for kind of abstract national unity um, as part of wanting to join this international order. As a means to disguise deeper kind of social conflicts within Scotland, especially conflicts along class lines. So you can see this right now um, in Scotland during the inflation crisis, whereby I mean Sturgeon's not saying this exactly, but basically Sturgeon's argument um, to the movement is: look, you have to get behind us uh, because we have uh, we're pushing for October twenty twenty-three referendum. Um, you know, don't get involved in supporting these bin strikes and, and and other actions in Scotland. Now, that kind of that that to us, you know, the argument making the book is that is really one of the things that is actually at the heart of what nationalism is. It's a, it's a, a sort of abstract appeal to national unity to disguise um, deeper social conflict. And in that sense, Sturgeon is um, you know. Sturgeon's nationalism could be compared to lots of types of nationalism, even if the politics is very different. So, for example, Trump—you um, know—Sturgeon and Trump are in many ways polar opposites. But Trump also speaks to an abstract national unity um, to disguise deeper conflicts of social, class, especially along uh, uh, along class lines. Um, so, so that's how that's how we, we we would look at it. And again, that's that's when, that's sort of. Deeply in conflict with a lot of conventional thinking on the issue, when you start disentangling internationalism, nationalism, along lines of social class, I think it, things start to make a lot more a lot more sense.
0: Yeah, I guess it may be worth thinking a bit, David, about what this actually means, like on an ethical level, for what it means to be a socialist in terms of the national question in the deeper sense, because. I mean, there is this argument that says, well, what the last 10, 12 years of crisis has proved is that people aren't spontaneously internationalist um, in defiance of what many people on the left might hope for, and that the spontaneous contingency for internationalism, if you want to call it that, tends to be the upper middle classes who feel this sense of fluidity between borders and all these other things, academics, business people, you know, uh, and and all the others that we're familiar with. Does that mean that we are inherently nationalist as a community um, and that we can't conceive of a higher form of democratic political organisation? For me, not necessarily at all, indeed. Um, What I think is the case is that, when you think about the distinction between nationalism and internationalism, the institutions that we have on a national level were founded in a spirit of class conflict. the working class had to fight for a share democratically of the national wealth, to have a say in terms of the vote, etc, etc. By contrast, insofar as we have even the vaguest rudiments of dem- democracy, at the international level, they have been imposed largely by elites in order to gain more consent for what it's doing. So the classic example is giving people the vote in the European Parliament in 1979, which before that hadn't even had even the rudiments of public participation. So it tends to be that, in other words, people were handed rights uh, that they didn't ask for, largely, when it comes to anything at the international level. Whereas people fought for the power to vote at a national level, they think that rights should be administered at that level for that reason. And they are discontented with their politicians at a national level when they don't get those rights or when they see their social and economic rights receding under certain stresses. Globalisation, thus, has been a sort of elite project uh, the national level remains the level at which people think seriously about their politics. And also, I would argue, it remains the most important unit at the real international level of politics. What I think has been the consequence of the likes of the European Union, NATO, and other international organisations and institutions has not been to take power away from the nation-state as such. It's been to empower the governing class of the nation state and a wider capitalist class that surrounds it at the expense of forces of democracy, broadly speaking, and most especially those of the working class.
1: Let me ask a final question then about Scotland and internationalism from above. Um, Now, obviously, especially since the 2016 Brexit referendum, European style, you know, EU style transnationalism has become a much stronger part of the profile of Scottish independence. Yeah. Um, There's kind of a tendency within Scottish independence to kind of oppose ourselves to the political winds that are blowing in London. That's part of it, perhaps. But there is also a wider sense that you often hear this in SNP circles in particular we'll be leaving a smaller union and joining a bigger union. Yes. I mean, there's a critique of Scottish independence that basically says that um, Scottish independence now is simply an arm of the transnationalist um, internationalism from above struggle. For example, there are, there are intellectuals, some of whom you, you reference in the book, um, principally down south, who say, you know, Britain is the first really major breakaway from the European Union, Scottish independence should be understood as an attempt to undermine that, as a wedge from those transnational establishments back into that breakaway project. I mean, what do you say to that? And is there any prospect of (laughs) rescuing Scottish independence from its newfound adoration of of internationalism from above?
0: I mean... Let me first articulate the essential problem with the critique uh, that you've made, which is that I have perfect sympathy with the right of uh, the UK population to vote to leave the European Union. And I also have sympathy with the idea that that could have been a major moment of the restoration of popular sovereignty. The problem, I think, the missing element of all of that is agency and leadership. I don't think we can expect the contemporary Conservative Party, even at the most generous possible level of interpretation, if you say that perhaps Boris Johnson might have been able to mobilise certain broad populist forces, um, what you've seen more recently is that the Conservative Party could not stomach and stand that and have reverted to a relatively traditional Thatcherite profile which was probably the inspiration for the rebellion against Boris Johnson if you go underneath all of his, of course, deeply unprofessional behaviour and so on. That was probably the real reason the Conservatives wanted rid of him or certain elements of the party certainly did. And if you look beyond that in British politics, you're looking at the Labour Party. And yeah, they've sort of sullenly accepted Brexit, but they haven't really provided any creative answers for how they might provide more popular sovereignty, more democracy, or more economic control within the British economy or any of these types of things whatsoever. Basically, they're just a satellite of the Conservatives that are hoping that when the Conservatives get unpopular enough, the Labour Party will be re-elected. Now, as for Scottish independence, I think it's fair enough to make the critique that has been made of Sturgeonism and the way that the SNP has... um, reoriented itself around professional managerial elites after 2016. But I think it's also worth saying that the Scottish independence movement that emerged between 2012 and 2014 was a major rebellion in terms of popular sovereignty and the first in British politics for many, 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 many years that you could remotely take seriously. And it was remotely, uh, you know, uh, you know, mobilised at a popular level in a way that you had not seen in British politics, even around causes such as the Iraq War previously. Um, and from that, you could probably take that there is a momentum around questions of popular sovereignty embedded within the Yes movement, which sadly has been captured by those elements of the Scottish National Party, Uh, that do want just a seat at the table as uh, Ben-oriented. Now, the basic problem, I think, with that, that they're going to come up against is seat-at-the-table nationalism, nationalism framed in terms of internationalism from below, has not yet taken account of the fact that that whole system is basically collapsing around us. And therefore, you see with the SNP's programme for independence, it's a relic of the 1990s, basically. It does not make sense in the world that we've got right now with you know fast-rising inflation, massive budget deficits, uh, deglobalization, the disconnection of different parts of the global economy, um, and all these different things. It's a complete fantasy prospectus in that universe of the way things are. And essentially, I think Sturgeonism has thrived by promising things to the professional managerial elite in terms of restoring the consensus of the 1990s, which are frankly impossible. She is playing on the delusions, in other words, sadly, of the most educated members of our society. Therefore, I think for Scottish independence to restore some amount of credibility, paradoxically, we need to return to some of the themes of popular sovereignty that were articulated in the period between 2012 and 2014. Is that an easy process? Certainly not. Perhaps it might take another decade or a generation to revive some of that type of spirit, because sadly I sometimes think we might have missed our moment um, and that Sturgeon may have traded in the cause of national independence for the crusade, um against Brexit, which might have seemed like a clever idea at the time, but I think in retrospect will be, ill-considered by future historians um, when they come to see what went wrong with the cause of Scottish independence. But I think, you know, ultimately in the capitalist universe that we exist in now, the world of the crises of surrounding Ukraine, deglobalization, energy crisis, climate crisis, and so on, it's more important than ever that we try to take seriously those moments of democratic renewal that do emerge within our system. And in terms of Scottish politics, there was nothing surrounding Brexit. The only real moment that we've seen like that recently has been the Yes movement uh, that thrived between 2012 and 2014.
1: Uh, Thanks very much, James. And in uh, the next podcast, we will be returning, bringing a a new lens to that movement in, in 2012. 2014 and discussing the the collapse of, of Scotland's Red Wall, um, much much discussed in England but very under discussed in the in the case of Scotland I think so, yeah we'll be we'll be returning to that even if Nicholas Studgeon doesn't. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contour Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash